Father, we, we come to you, God, and we know that we cannot ever learn anything from your word without your Holy Spirit. And so, Father, we ask that you would send us your Holy Spirit, that you would be our teacher, you would be the joy that overflows from our heart as we, as we sense you teaching us, you, you freeing us, you bringing us what we need in our hearts. God, I, I thank you so much that I know that you will answer this prayer. I know beyond any shadow of a doubt that you will be faithful to give us the good gift of your Holy Spirit because you have said in your word that you would. So we stand upon your word. We, we, we trust you in this place. We don't trust our brains to be able to make understanding and application of, of the scriptures. We ha it has to be in the heart, God, and, and so we need your work to do that in us. So, Father, we come to you in total dependence, in total humility. God, we need you. We cannot do this ourselves. In your name we pray, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I went uh, to a coffee shop yesterday to, um, to kind of put the last touches on this, and, and I found a blog that brought me to tears. And I'm sitting there listening to my headphones in and, and Starbucks and crying, and people probably thought I was a weirdo, but hey, that's me. <laughs> So I found this blog, and this is what it said. My biggest problem with the with I'm going to read it how they said it. My biggest problem with the Christianity was that they have a God who creates an imperfect creation and then expects that creation to live up to his standards. Failure to live up to his standards will result in eternal damnation. Truth be told, there isn't one redeeming feature in Christianity. And I read that, and, and it's so sad. You know, at first I'm like, oh, you don't understand. But then I just was sad. You know, I'm, I'm not going to insult this person's intelligence and say that they should just know better. But I, I just grieve because the truth is exactly what he supposes is too good to be true. He literally, this person who wrote this, he, he's assuming that what he's heard about the Bible or what he is thinking about the Bible is true. And in reality, the truth that his heart is telling him should be is true. But it's, it's too good to be true for him. And it's not the message that he's heard from, from whatever people, whatever influences he's had of what Christianity is. See, God did create a perfect creation. Like, like his heart was telling him, why would God create an imperfect creation? I look around and there's suffering and there's pain. Why? Why is this an imperfect creation? Well, God did create a perfect creation. If he would have read his Bible, he would know that. Man ruined it by departing from the source of perfection, the God who created them for relationship with him. And then he said in his little blog, he said, and then expects that the creation live up to his standards. Yes, that is true. That's called the law. But would you really want it to be any different than that? Would be my question to this man if I was able to talk to him. What if God's standard was, was not perfect and holy? What if God allowed people like Hitler into heaven? Wouldn't there be an outrage? Wouldn't we be able to justly say, God, you are unjust to let such a horrible person who never repented of his sin and murder... Wouldn't you, you, wouldn't you be God unjust in letting that person into your heaven or forgiving them? 
Yes, we could justly say that. So what's the standard? Hitler doesn't get in, but Stalin does get in. Me, you, who decides? Obviously, we can't decide. So God sets up a standard with no loopholes. A standard that will only ever declare what is right all the time. And that's what the Ten Commandments, that's what the law does for us. It brings to us a standard that never budges. No matter how much you wish, it would just be a little bit merciful. It never does. It only ever shouts one message, and that is, this is what's right, and this is how much you suck. This is what is perfect, and this is how imperfect you are. That is the message of the law, and that is absolutely taught in the Bible. All throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, the law is there. It never changes because it's perfect. It's simply a description of who Jesus is. Does Jesus lie? No. So that's the standard. There is a standard of what is right and wrong, and we would all agree that it is right. That's why our country has laws based on this standard, because it's a standard that judges what's right and wrong. And his heaven and his creation have his fingerprints all over it. And so this standard is built inside of each one of us. We know the law. It's the gospel that we need to be informed of. Truth be told, he said, there isn't one redeeming feature in Christianity. And this is the part that broke my heart as I was sitting in Starbucks listening to my rap music, Christian rap music, and studying, okay? The whole point of Christianity and the gospel is that Christ redeems the sinners who don't live up to the perfect standard. That's the whole point. He loves and sacrifices on the cross so that we don't ever have to be measured by the standard. The standard is literally removed from us. So, our scripture today that we're going to look at in Genesis chapter 12, it's going to teach us to not fall away in this way. You know, the blog that we just read was written by someone who claims they used to believe in Jesus, but because of suffering and trials that they experience, or what we'll call today famines of this world, he chose to reject Jesus. Because the gospel was not made clear to him. He did not understand the redeeming parts of the whole Bible. He only understood the law, which is the part that everyone understands. Everyone knows that there is a list and a standard of, of rules that's built inside us. Our own conscience tells us we're wrong. And the law is so good at yelling that message of, you don't measure up. But they need someone to tell them the gospel. It is not naturally real. You couldn't just come up with the idea that God would sacrifice his son for the sins of the people, of the sins of, for the sins of the whole world. We couldn't come up with that. So when it's declared, it's something new. It's something that changes people. And our scripture today is going to teach us to not fall away when we face the trials and the famines in our lives but rather to hold on to Jesus and stay close to him by trusting in his word and power in our lives. So I've told you what I'm going to teach you today. Now I'm going to teach it. So chapter 12 of Genesis. 
We start in verse 10, because we've been going through this chapter. And in verse 10, it says, Now there was a famine in the land. And Abraham, he, he went down to Egypt to dwell there. For the famine was severe in the land. So we're going to stop right there. This is the land, as we have seen, that Abraham is supposed to be in. He's in the land of Canaan. It's the land that God has promised. And as soon as Abraham rolled up into there, God's like, this is the land, this is it. And Abraham's like, yeah. And Abraham starts building altars. He's spending time with God. He's loving God. And then all of a sudden, there's a famine. So why is there a famine? Isn't this the land that Abraham's supposed to be in? Isn't there supposed to be blessings of rain coming down? Wouldn't we think that if you're in the place God wants you to be in, that you would be blessed? That you would have what makes you happy and comfortable and taken care of? We would think that's how it works. Well, this reminds me. Why does Snoop Dogg need an umbrella? For the drizzle. <laughs> Why do I have to go through difficult things and tough times when I follow Jesus? This is our thesis question for the day. Why do I have to go through tough times when I'm following Jesus? If I've been adopted by the king of the universe, and I'm his beloved child, which are true, why do we experience famines like Abram did? Well, it was said about Jesus in Hebrews 5.8, it says this, Although he was a son... He's the son of God. He's his beloved son. Every time God spoke from heaven, he says, this is my beloved son who I'm so happy with. He makes me happy. He does everything I want. I love this dude. That's what the father would say. He's a son. It says in, in Hebrews 5.8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through the things which he suffered. George Whitfield, the great Puritan preacher, said, our Savior learned obedience by the things which he suffered, and so must we. Affliction, if patiently endured and sanctified to us, is a great purifier of our corrupted natures. It will teach us excellent things. It will teach us excellent things. Another quote. I got a couple quotes I want to read to you guys. William S. Plummer says, God loves his own children too well to exempt them from affliction. It's a blessed thing when our trials cure our earnest love for perishable worldly things. Pizza just doesn't taste as great when you're suffering, when you have a broken heart. And pizza's awesome. But why does it not satisfy me why does the TV just get so boring sometimes? You're just clicking through the channels. Nothing is really on. It's like, ah, oh, nothing's good's on, but I'm going to click through anyway. And then you fall asleep. Another quote. Matthew Henry wrote a great commentary in the Bible. He says, Afflictions are sent for this end, to bring us to the throne of grace, to teach us to pray, to make the word of God's grace precious to us. It, had, it has always been to the advantage of God's people to be afflicted. Many are taught with the briars and thorns of affliction who would not learn otherwise. In other words, God knows how to get through to us. 
And then Hebrews 12.10 says, God disciplines us for our own good that we may share in his holiness. And then I wrote down another quote, and this is the most powerful one for my life because this is a quote from my dad as he was teaching me as we were growing up and as we were going through some struggles financially and he was self-employed, so he would sometimes not have work and he would sit us down and he would say, God is writing a resume of his faithfulness in your life. And, and he would look at me and he would say, Sean, I don't have work right now so that you will see how much God loves you and how much God will provide. I know that God will provide. And guess what? God always provided. We didn't have money to pay the rent. And all of a sudden, he would get a job and they would pay up front and boom, we had the money. Is unbelievable. And I remember specific times. And each one of those things is like a resume God is writing. And every time I am tempted to doubt, and every time my heart decides, I don't really believe God's going to take care of me right now, I can think back and I can pull out that resume and say, well, look what he did back here. Well, remember that time? That was even worse than this. And God never once failed us. Never once failed. So why why, why, in verse 11, does Abraham go down to Egypt? Why does he go down to Egypt? Well, he's concerned about the famine, obviously, which is not bad. He observes, hey, there's no rain, no food, I'm going to die. I'm going to take my family and my nephew Lot and all our people that are with us, and we're going to go down to Egypt, I'm going to take care of it. But the reality of the situation is he should have stayed. He's doubting whether God would provide for him in the land that God told him to live in. That's bad. Egypt is usually, in the Bible, a type of the world. And, and, and what the world has to offer. And God never told Abram to go down to Egypt. God did send the famine. Oh, man, but Abraham is missing out. Abraham not being led by the word of God anymore. God never said, go down to Egypt. And so Abraham, though, he's taking his own names. Like, I'm, the, I'm a man. I'm going to go lead my family to where I can provide for them what the world has to offer. God gave Abraham his word and his promises to live by. If God said, stay in the land, and God said, I'm going to make you a father of many nations, I'm going to bless you, then obviously he is literally invincible. He cannot die until he has kids. And so he should stay where the word of God told him to stay. It's just the word. That's all Abraham had was the word. That's what he had to live by. If he would have just heard the word and remembered the promises, he would have stayed and he would have seen God miraculously provide for him in the famine. But no, he chooses to go down. And the word, the word, the word that he could have heard, that he could have remembered is the same exact thing that you and I have today to be led by. That's it. That's all we get. The word this is it. That's not fair. That's not what I signed up for. It's okay. God has given us his word as our way to hear his voice and connect with him. It's to keep us where we're supposed to be, even if it's in a famine. In Psalm 1830, we read a scripture that says, As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. And he's a shield to all those who trust in him. God is perfect. And if God is perfect, he wants us to know about him. 
then his method to reveal himself will be perfect as well. So you have in your hands or on your phones or in your smart device, you have a perfect thing. This world is so full of things that are imperfect. Even when you're on the phone with someone, it can cut out. And they, you might hear, I'm fine. But what they really said is, there is no way I'm fine. Because the imperfect connection that you had with them. But the word of God, he says, is perfect. And if he's perfect, his word of God is proven. And because he's perfect, so is his word. This is a perfect way for us to know him. It's the perfect way. I wish it was a hologram. I wish it was like R2-D2. Projecting a picture of Jesus telling me what to do. That would be so much easier for my sci-fi based brain. But it's not. It's the word of God. And it's his spirit that will speak in my heart. In 1 Thessalonians 1.5, it says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power. And in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. So the reality or the power of the word is proven in our lives. The lives of people who trust his word and believe it and spend time in it. So as we're, as we're spending time in the word, it's not just words. It's not just ink on white paper or electrons that are black on white there is a power behind the Word of God. That it doesn't matter what language you speak, the Word of God maintains its power because there's a hidden and visible power behind it. And he, he mentions two specific attributes in this verse, in 1 Thessalonians, that, that describe the power. And the first one is the Holy Spirit. That describes power. The Holy Spirit, as said, created the entire world, universe, and so that's a tremendous amount of power. And he says the Holy Spirit changes our desires. That kind of power, the world has nothing. I go to the jail on Wednesdays, and I'm teaching people Bible studies in this room, and then there's a little hallway, and then there's a room on the other side, and there's glass, and we can see each other, and they make faces at us, and we, we say, God bless you. No, I, we see them, they see us. And in that classroom, what they're doing is there's someone teaching them uh, a whole bunch of worldly philosophical ideas of how to change how they think and how to change what their heart desires. Well, you don't want a desire to be criminals. You want, you should desire to be good. And so they're giving them all these reasons and all these human philosophical reasons why they should change. And you know how, how well it works? It doesn't. It doesn't. And I'm over here, and I tell the guys, I use it as a contrast all the time. And I say, look at all of them. They're wasting their time over there. Because they don't have the Holy Spirit that's teaching them, but you guys have chosen wisely to spend time in the Lord, to spend time in his word, you'll see the Holy Spirit change your desires. And then the second thing in this verse that it mentions to us is that it gives us much assurance, which is another power the word of God gives us. A change in expectation. We have assurance now of what my life is going to look like, of where I'm going to go when I die. We have a change in desires and a change in expectation. There's two ways that the power of the word of God works in our life. And Abram could have experienced this, but he chose to not go by the power of the word of God. God's word is proven by his work in my heart or the power that I see displayed in my own heart. Another verse that coincides with this is, is 1 Corinthians 4.20. And it says, for the kingdom of God is not in word only, but in power. 
The kingdom of God is not in word, but is in power. God's word brings the kingdom of God into my life. We know that the kingdom of God is going to eventually overwhelm, and, and Jesus is going to come and set up his kingdom. For more than that, God is going to win. And his kingdom will be seen in my life as I read and trust the words of this book. It's not that the words have a, have a magical ability. They're not Harry Potter magic phrases that do things. No, it's the spirit behind those words that pours his power and the literal life of Jesus into my heart and changes me moment by moment. It's a new life. It's a resurrection life. No other book or message or religion can do what the word of God does. It brings dead things to life. It doesn't just reform them. It doesn't just suggest better ways to go. It explains our situation in truth, which is the law portion. It says, you are terrible at keeping the law. But then, but then, and I wish that the guy who wrote the blog would have heard this message, it offers God's grace to us and says, yes, you have failed, but God has loved you and provided all you need if you would just turn to Jesus in faith. That's the gospel. Both sides, God's word has power. God's word has the power to break someone down and then to build them up. Seen in Jesus' life, God had the power to destroy the temple and in three days build it back up. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. He says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord, as his divine power, that power that's working in the word, has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us by glory and virtue. So as we get to know Jesus in his word, we find out that he is totally sufficient. He is given and supplies all that we need. His power is divine. His power is given. It's never earned, only given to those who will ask in humility and faith. And though, and though through, excuse me, through his power in our lives, we receive, it says, all things, all things that pertain to life and godliness, all things, that's why the Word of God is sufficient. That's why when I do the radio show on Calvary Live, on, on Grace FM, man, I can speak so clearly into someone's life, not because I know all the answers or I've been trained in psychological abilities to, to explain to them what their problem is. No, it's very simple. I give them the law and I help them understand that they have a need for God and then I give them God's grace, which is what they need. And it's sufficient. And people wonder and people struggle with, okay, I'm going to a psychologist and they're telling me this. And they say, oh, you're a Christian, that's fine. But add to Jesus these few things. And if you just add to Jesus these few things, then you'll be okay. And I wholeheartedly tell you, reject that. You need nothing except for the Bible. The Bible claims that. You don't need it. And they say, oh, well, you don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's this argument that says, oh, yeah, you can totally buy into some of the psychological ideas and, and going back into your 
previous life or your memories and doing all these things that the Bible talks nothing about, and they say there's value in it, so you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater just because there's a few things in psychology that don't really line up with the Bible. You don't want to get rid of the whole thing. And my argument is the Bible says you can. The Bible says throw it out. The Bible says reject it. The Bible says only the Bible matters. That's its claim, not mine. But I will believe it. The Bible says Jesus will give you all things. All things. It's so beautiful. What is God interested in? It says in this verse, what is God committed to blessing? Why is he giving you all things? Because he wants your life and your godliness to be blessed. He's concerned about your life. He knows you want a puppy or you want a better job. And he's, he's fine with those things. He wants you to experience blessing. But he knows that all those blessings will turn into curses if you don't have Jesus in his proper place in your life. All of them. Even if you get your puppy and your perfect job, they will turn into curses. He'll bite you. He'll pee on your pillow. It will just never work out. And so God, he, he says, if you just put Jesus as head over everything and abide in him, he says your life and your godliness will, will both have life. They will be working. He calls out to you instructions for you to be successful in both of these arenas uh, through his word, through his word. He pours out power into our lives through the Holy Spirit working through his word. God's word is everything we need. But Abram, he, he just hasn't quite grown enough in his relationship with the Lord to be able to trust God in this famine. He, would God have provided for him in the promised land? Yes, he should have stayed. He could have had a heart like David in Psalm 63, which says, Oh God, you are my God. Early I will seek you. My, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and a thirsty land where there is no water. Yes, David is speaking metaphorically, but he could have been speaking just as well physically. I'm thirsty, God. This is a famine. Abraham could have had that heart that said, God, I seek you alone in this famine. And God would have used the situation to prove once again how faithful he is. We never need to doubt whether God will take care of us. And our deepest need is always to know how much he loves us. We will never be left alone. We will never be left to die. Now, you're going to die someday. I don't know how that's going to be. It might be a car wreck. It might be your puppy biting you. I don't know. But we will never be left alone. And death to us is no longer a scary thing, but it's simply being ushered into our true reality of being with God. So yes, we will have problems. We are going to have famines. But each one of them is a part of our learning how God desires to provide for our needs and to write a resume of his faithfulness in our life to learn how much he loves us. I have a different perspective on trials than I did 10 years ago or 20 years ago. I, found, I, I did some calculating today. I've been saved for 26 years. I was like blown away by that. 
I, Ed put on, he's been saved for 24. So I'm Ed's elder. Just kidding. <laughs> I love you, Ed. You're my elder. In case you ever listen to this. Well, God, he desires to provide for our needs. He's writing this resume of faithfulness in our lives. He is searching throughout the world for hearts that will seek him and not run away at the first sign of difficulty. Not like Abram, man. Abram, he, he jets as soon as it gets a little dry. Your marriage gets rocky. Your husband is insensitive and your wife hates you. Maybe. Are you going to seek him in that famine? Your job is a constant pain. Are you going to seek him? Like David, I thirst for you, God, in this dry and weary land of my job. Your kids are breaking your last thread of sanity. Are you going to seek him? You've had a long week and you just want to relax because you're just burned out. Are you going to instead seek him first? Seek him. Go and get alone with your Bible. Come to surrender service on Saturday just to give it to him. He has no problem repeating himself if you've just forgotten what he's already told you, what he's already spoken into your heart. Maybe you just, it's just kind of faded. The world has just drowned it out. He has no problem inviting you in, drawing you back. He will speak to anyone who will seek him with their whole heart. James 4, 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. He will. But Abraham, he goes down to Egypt. The picture of the world. I got a problem. I got to go to the world to get it taken care of. Even if it takes me out of God's will to the place away from the place that God wants me to be. That, to me, describes a ton of divorces. The world has something better for me than this. This trip down to Egypt for Abram, it's going to have some consequences. Don't get me wrong. God's going to do some, we're going to see, one of the consequences is named Hagar, an Egyptian handmaid that they just happened to pick up. We're going to see that come into play in a couple weeks when we see. I don't want to give it away in case you don't know. <laughs> so let's continue reading. It came to pass in, in Genesis 12, verse 11. It came to pass when he was close to entering Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, indeed, I know that you are a beautiful woman of beautiful countenance. He's just getting his, his brownie points right here. Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they will say, this is his wife and they will kill me and they will let you live. So in other words, I'm more important than you. So this is what I want you to do. <clears throat> Please say you are my sister, that it may be well with, with me for your sake and that I may live because of you. He's so self-centered here. It's funny, as soon as you leave, God's plan, God's will for your life how all uh, amazingly self-centered you get, like, like that. Just like that. What's he thinking about? Hmm. 
The princes of Pharaoh, okay, so verse 14. So it was when Abram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman, that she was very beautiful. And the princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commended her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And he treated Abram well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called to Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say, She's my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Therefore, here is your wife. Go your way. Take her and go your way. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away and his wife and all he had. Now, my wife is beautiful, but we've never been to Egypt, so I haven't been challenged with this. She must have been a knockout. She's like 60 years old. A Jewish legend says that when Abram went into Egypt, he tried to hide Sarai in a casket. And when the Egyptians' custom officials asked what he had in the casket, he said, barley. No, they said, it contains wheat. Very well, Abraham said, I'll pay the custom on wheat. And then the officers said it contained pepper. And Abram said he would pay the custom charges on pepper. Then the officers said it contained gold. And Abraham said he would pay the custom charges on gold. Then the officers said it contained precious stones. So Abraham said he would pay the custom charges on precious stones. By this time, the officers insisted on opening the casket. And when they did, all Egypt, Egypt, it says, shined with the beauty of Sarai. And this, the same legend says that in comparison to Sarai, all the other women looked like monkeys. And that she was even more beautiful than Eve. Wow. I don't know quite what to say about that. Except it reminds me of that song. If you want to be happy for the rest of your life. How's it go? Never make a pretty woman yet. That was Abraham's suggestion, I guess. Well, here we have the father of faith deceiving, lying, and then trusting in his deception to protect him instead of trusting in the Lord. He, he, he had no need to lie. He, his doubt in God grew out of, or grew into fear, and it tricked him. He could have just gone back to God's word and remembered that he was going to have a kid and that he was invincible until that happened because God can't lie. God doesn't want Sarah to be taken advantage of and the king of Egypt either. He doesn't want the king of Egypt lied to. God cares for her. God has a plan for her. And even though her husband was a goober, you know, Abraham could have been used to bless and minister to Pharaoh. Even if he went down there of his own will, he could have been nice to Pharaoh, but he's not really walking in the spirit right now. God steps in to protect her when her husband was not being godly. God is so committed to blessing Abram that he will not leave him when he acts unbelieving and doubtful. And that lesson is so important for me. It's so big for me. It's so good for me, because how many times have I doubted God's word? How many times have I said, you know there's a famine right now, right, God? 
How many times have I lied to try to protect what I really like and what I really didn't want to lose? Abraham really liked his wife Sarai, but not enough to trust God with her. And he almost lost her. He did lose her for a time. Instead of trusting the Lord and acting godly, and God would have kept everything together. But because of God's grace, God does protect. He steps in and protects their, their family. And God is, what he's doing right now at, at the end of this chapter is he's telling us a story of how he grew Abram into a man of faith. And this requires circumstances where Abram must trust God. And God is doing the exact same thing in your life. He will bring situations into your life where you must trust him. Maybe you really screw up. And there is nothing you can do to fix your mistake. No matter how many lies you tell, you're found out. No matter how many things, no, there's just nothing you can do. You have to trust the Lord when he says, I'll forgive you. Come back to me. Barnhouse gives us a quote and it says, Faith is not a mushroom that grows overnight in damp soil. It is an oak tree that grows for a thousand years under the blast of the wind and rain. That's what faith is. Nobody just says, I believe, and they believe everything. If they do, it's not a strong faith. A strong Real faith is when you have screwed up time and time again and every time you've been rebuked and you come back to God and you say, I will trust you next time. And you grow in your ability to trust him and the resume of his faithfulness gets one more line. Oh, he forgave me for that. He restored me for this. He forgave me once again when I didn't deserve it. Every time until you get to the point where you say, I know that he'll always forgive me. I know that he loves me. So, does it feel like all you ever experience is rain and wind, though? That quote's awesome. He says, the oak tree grows for a thousand years under this wind and rain. Well, I don't really like all the wind and rain. It's not very comforting. John 16, says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. The disciples of Jesus got that message from him. And they, they felt the wind and the rain too. If you remember the story, Jesus told them, hey, let's get in a boat and cross over to the Sea of Galilee. There's the promise. There's the word of God. Get in a boat and we will cross over. We will get to where I've said we're going. There's a promise in that that we'll get there. There's a word. So just like Abraham, they've heard the word. They've heard the promise. But what happens? As soon as Jesus falls asleep in the boat, a massive squall of wind and rain come upon them. Even these aged and experienced fishermen were scared to death of this storm. So instead of a famine, it's a storm. But you get the point. It's the same thing. It got so bad that the waves started to fill the boat with water. 
So they wake Jesus up and he calms the sea and the wind and the waves stop in an instant. And Jesus turns around and he rebukes them for being afraid of the waves. No, that's not what happened. He does not rebuke them for being afraid of the waves. Jesus turns around and he rebukes them for not being brave enough. No, no, that's not what happened either. Was it for being strong enough to, to paddle and to row through the storm? Nope, that's not he, what he rebuked them for either. The only thing that Jesus rebuked them for was not having faith. He said, in this world you will have tribulation, whether it's a famine or it's a storm. But he says, he gives them a command, and he says, be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. We have a promise here. It's not a promise we like. It's a promise that you will have storms. You will have famines. In fact, you're all probably in a storm and a famine right now. Maybe you're like, oh, I can't sit in these hard chairs anymore. That's the famine I'm in. We cannot say we don't know that anymore. Now that you've come to church today, you know you're going to have famines and storms. We have heard the word of the Lord. It will happen. There is a famine coming. But just like Abraham, don't leave. Don't go to the world. Jesus says, I have overcome the world. So what do we do? We are commanded by Jesus to be of good cheer. Get happy. Rejoice. Look forward to it. Why? Because I have overcome the world, Jesus says. Jesus will come through and calm your storm. He will give you water in your famine, even when it, does, it looks impossible. Just stay in the promised land. Every storm is just the next great show of Jesus' victory. It can be. For the believer, that's what it is. I don't care what your storm is. It's cancer. Well, guess what? It's just another opportunity for God to show his victory that Jesus says, I've already won. I got fired. I'm terrible at life. I, my puppy bit me. Whatever your trial is, your storm, it is simply an opportunity to see Jesus' victory that's already happened become real in your life. If you believe, if you have faith, if you hear the word spoken and believe it and put your trust in him alone to do it, you are living by faith. If you hear the word spoken, believe it, and put your trust in him alone to do it, you are living by faith. Third time, if you hear the word spoken, believe it, and put your trust in him alone to do it, you are living by by faith. Abram and the disciples both failed and were both rebuked. We need to be rebuked sometimes. Abram was rebuked by a pagan pharaoh. The pharaoh's like, you're an idiot. The disciples were, were rebuked by Jesus himself. We need to be rebuked also of that part in our heart that doesn't believe. Because all of us have it. it. We need it to be revealed, rejected, and rebuked. 
Let his word and his spirit search our hearts and blaze its glorious light and to scatter every corner of darkness. Let us be ashamed of our unbelief. Let us confess it. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Are you fearful of anything? Are you worried? In the world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. There is nothing that can happen to you that Jesus has not already beaten. Sickness, job loss, marriage problems, even the sting of death, Jesus claims to be the one who will take care of each one of these situations. As we read, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, every situation. His power will be given to you and shown in your life. It's a matter of his character, his love for you, his never-ending promise to give you what, all that you need and ask for in him, if you abide in him. But do you believe it? Do you believe? Don't answer me right now. Don't even think of an answer. Your answer will be clear by how you look forward to and respond to and trust Jesus in your storms, your famines. That's your answer. That's your answer. Imagine for one second how different these stories would have been if the response of Abraham and the response of the disciples would have been faith-filled. Abraham would have been provided for and he still have his wife next to him with all the benefits that came with this beautiful wife. The disciples could have had a nap. That would be a blessing. Both restful and wonderful blessings, and that's how grace works. When you trust in God, you get the blessings. Faith in our God, Jesus, is never misplaced even if it goes against what you can see with your human eyes. Because there is a redeeming aspect of Christianity. Jesus redeems me. Even if this whole world is filled with famines and trouble, he will still save me. He will still call me out and call me up to heaven when it's done. And he will still redeem every part of my life as I trust in him. Psalm 86.5, this is where we end today. It says, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all who call upon you.